0: Hashem Hashem Naaseh V'Natsliach, great to be at the Breslov Center in Aventura again, but Hashem, a lot more people. Uh, also, this uh, Shiyu will be to Ilui Nishmat Rivka Bat-Bert, and also Machluf Ben Miriam, Ve? Avner. Avner. And Repuah Shlemah, Ben Ben Sara Ve? Noah bat Zava Noah bat Zava, Ve? Mina Yehudit, Ve? Minah Yehudit, but Masuni Marcel, Avadia Marcel, Ovadia Ben Sarah, Rafa Shlomo also Dvorah Bat Mercedes, Chana Leah Bat Israel, Rivka Bat Sarah Batia, Sarah Bat Rachel, David Ben Sria, Doris Bat Sarah Bat Sarah, Levana Bat Sarah, Sarah Bat Levana and. Levana, Batzara, Rabbi Yishai Yosef, Ben Avraham Nitzari. May Hashem give them a first. Ah. Man, he's doing, man. Did you, man? Really? Yerachmiel Ben Frida Devorah Frida. Yerachmiel. Ben Frida Devorah Mordechai Batzara. Batzara. Moshe um, David Ben uh, Dvorah. Moshe David Ben Dvorah. Thank you. Joel ben Malka. Yoel Ben Malka. Rifka Bat Chana. Rivka And all of Am Yisrael, Be'ezrat Hashem, yeah, will yeah, have yeah, Refuah yeah, Shlemah, yeah, Refuah Nefesh, uh, Refuah TeGuf. Right. Thank right. 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 Hashem will have a Siyata Shmaya to have a good shiur for the honor of Kvod Hashem. And obviously for the honor of all these precious souls, the ones that are still with us, the ones that have left us. And uh, I know that today is going to be an interesting shiur. And the reason why I know is because, as we've talked about, Hashem, everything that He created, He created, in essence, a uh, another side for it. neged So just like, for example, there's tall, there's short... There's black, there's white, there's darkness, there's light. And just like Hashem has kiseh kavod, He also made a kiseh kavod for the Satan himself. Just like He gave Am Yisrael, the prophet of all prophets, Moshe Rabbeinu, He gave the Goyim Bilam rasha, It was such a Rasha that the Chazal asked, How could he possibly be a prophet? Prophecy is pure. It's purity. It's directly from Hashem. So it's all. Bilam is called the person with only one eye. Why is he called the person with one eye? Because he really only had one eye. The other eye was just a hole. And that eye, since there was no eye there, it's the only part of his body that didn't sin. And that's how he would get the prophecy. The rest of his body sinned. Hashem But back to the kiseh kavod and what Hashem gave the Satan... Each time, Chazal says that each time we make a sin, we create a demon. We create someone that's going to try to influence us to make more sins. Each time we make a mitzvah, we create an angel that's going to help us make more mitzvot. So it's pays to make more mitzvot, and that's actually how the, the root of where they say mitzvah goreret mitzvah, ve'avera goreret avera, one mitzvah leads to another mitzvah, and one avera, one sin, leads to another sin. This is why sometimes you see somebody is a frum-frum person, everything is great, he wears the hat, he has the beard, he has this, he has that, next thing you know he's in a casino. Whoa, what are you doing? Yesterday you were at the, leading the tefillah, uh, you know, you were a uh, chazan, you were bal Kore, you were a you have kids, you had this. What happened today? First time you ever went to casino, all of a sudden you have a casino, now you have a girlfriend, and what happened? So mitzvah go'er mitzvah, avera go'er avera. He started one sin, he thought it's a little small. It's a tiny, small, tiny little sin. But the little sin created someone's influence to make another sin. Another sin, another sin, and someone loses control. Hashem Ha'achem. Gainom is not too far. This is something we must remind ourselves of every day. I know it's harsh truth for some of you that have never heard my lectures, but this is reality. If we don't speak reality, we're never going to do tshuva. And whether you were from from birth, you did tshuva at some point during your life, you have to realize that you have to do tshuva every day. Every day you have to work on something. There's no such thing as someone who doesn't make a sin. Everyone makes some sins. Now the satan, for most of the work, he has shlichim. He has employees, which we create in essence. We create as employees. So most of the time he doesn't have to do anything. Just watches. Once in a while he gets off the chair himself. Once in a while he gets off the kisei kavod. When does that happen? When something big is going to happen. When a lot of his employees are about to quit. When one of his people that's helping people do tshuva, or perhaps a tzaddik that's doing mitzvot, or is doing avirot, is about to start doing a lot of mitzvot. He doesn't like it, so he starts getting in the way. Especially when it comes to Kiruv. So what does that have to do with today? I know that today's uh, lecture is going to be interesting because on the way here, I got into a car accident. Hashem. So I know that the Satan is interested in this lecture. So as Hashem will earn the Siat uh, Tishmaya to make this an interesting shiur that will help us all do tshuva. Now, we have a Pirkei Avot Musar series we started a few months ago. Baruch Hashem is getting a, a huge amount of amazing feedback, Uh, the stories, honestly you couldn't make up these stories, it's really amazing, Uh, people are doing tshuva, people are getting closer to Hashem, whether they were already religious or completely distant and far away from Hashem, over the last few months I've seen more results than I think I've seen the last few years that I'm doing this, and it's been really amazing, it's a combination of people that, of the shurim that, you know, that are happening, people that have joined the team publicizing our shurim, we're reaching over 250,000 people per week, which is unbelievable. Somebody just a few years ago barely even knew what Shabbat was. Right now is reaching a quarter million people a week and helping them do chuva. And uh, it's truly amazing. And just today I got a story. Somebody, um, a woman uh, contacted me and she said, I want to tell you a story. And, you know, this is one of those stories that makes it all worth it. Makes the car accident worth it. Makes the headaches worth it. Makes the complaints worth it. Makes the, everything worth it. This one story. And it's a great way to start this lecture because I think this will give us a little bit of a perspective of the outcome of our actions. Because most of us, in reality, are selfish. In reality, most of us are selfish. Most of us worry about us. We worry about when we're tired. Not when our wife is tired. We worry about when our we're tired. We worry about when, if we have money. Not if my neighbor has money for Shabbat. We worry about if my kids are good in school. Not if my next door neighbor is stressed out because his kids are failing me skin. We're selfish. Sometimes, Hashem helps us out a little bit. He says, listen, you know what? That one time you weren't selfish, something good happened. And he gives a little result. So this woman tells me, over the last year my life has changed Started watching Yeshua And things have changed completely. Started uh, doing Tshuva, started keeping Shabbat. Unfortunately, I still have to deal with the fact that I'm divorced. And my ex-husband is anti-Judaism. Unfortunately, some of the biggest enemies of Judaism in history have been Jews. This includes the Holocaust. And this includes history in general. Even going back to Mount Sinai. So this is not news. Now we have... The, she said we have a son. A seven-year-old son. And I'm trying to help this my son also learn about Judaism. Problem is that the husband, the ex-husband, doesn't allow him to go to yeshiva. Chash V'Shalom, he goes to yeshiva. Crazy, learn Torah. So... He doesn't want him to go to yeshiva. He wants him to go to public school. With all the goyim. tarif With all the goyim. Hashem Everything. But the mom is a tzaddikah. She knows this is not good. So she tries to teach the son. She shows him my videos. So one of my tzadikim assistants, also an amazing student from California, Albert, he made a movie that some of you watched, a part of one of my lectures, which Torah about Torah and Science. And we cut it into clips, and one of the clips talks about kosher. How to prove that the Torah is real through kosher. Through kosher laws. And you can see that the kosher animals are different than the rest of the animals. And it's it's beautiful. It's different sources from the Torah showing that kosher animals are extraordinary. And it's something unique. And it's something that only the creator could have done. It's not something that a man could have figured out. Anyone that hasn't watched it, you should watch it. And if you will not have it, I'll send it to you. Long story short, the little seven-year-old saw this video and he was so impressed by it he kept watching it and enjoying it and the mom being a tzaddikah that she is she tries to what does she do she tries to help the kid she can't take him out of school so what does she do she says I'll give him food every day every day the father takes him to school I get there a few minutes later and I give him prepared kosher food so at least my son's going to have kosher food one day she says this week I was late I was late by the time I got there they already served lunch and I was scared that, you know, my son's you know, seven years old. What does he know, me scan? He's a little kid. He's going to eat the lunch. He's going to eat uh, whatever he's going to eat with the rest of the kids. So I told him, oh, honey, here's lunch, but if you ate, it's okay. He goes, no, Ima, I didn't eat. Well, you didn't eat? No, he goes, Has shalom. I'm not going to eat that. It's not kosher. <laughs> but I took a picture of it. He took a picture of a sandwich with uh, meatballs, which Hashem knows what kind of animals in there, right next to a carton of milk. (laughs) Open. That was his friend's lunch. But this little tzaddik seven-year-old saw a movie, says, I'm going to keep kosher. I can't eat not kosher. I'm a Jew. Something like that makes it all worth it. Somebody watched a video, influenced a seven-year-old kid. Somebody made the video, influenced this kid. The kid bends out to Hashem one day, he's going to be a big tzaddik, a little thing from something that somebody thought, "Ah, what's the big deal?" I say one thing in a lecture. I make a video. I donate a few uh, a few dollars. I donate a few hours. I just show it for free. Everyone contributed this. Obviously, Hashem is controlling everything, but He gives us the ability to be partners in huge mitzvot. We just have to take advantage of them when we have. Now, something like that to me, is a million bucks. It's everything. It's it's, it's extraordinary because. To help an adult do tshuva, it's difficult, but it's not impossible. If someone is willing to find out the truth, if someone is looking for the truth, within a few hours I can prove to you anything you want. Whether God exists or he doesn't, whether there's proofs for anything you want in the Torah, rational perspective, scientific perspective, whatever perspective you want to create perspective, you can prove the Torah, it's very simple. Proving God is not uh, a—it's not rocket science. It's not uh, a—you don't have to be a genius to figure out that God exists. As a matter of fact, it's much harder to prove that God doesn't exist. So, an adult, if he's willing to listen, within a few hours, sometimes less, you can help them start doing tshuva. With a kid, it's one minute. One minute, one minute, one thing that you will do as a parent, as a brother, as a neighbor, as a teacher, as something. One minute is going to influence that kid forever. One thing that you will do. Now the problem with the kid is we don't know what that one minute is. We don't know if it's because he saw his father walk around with no keeper. We don't know if it's because he saw his mom not being modest. We don't know if it's because his teacher said a great story in school that changed his life. We don't know what it is. But with a kid he doesn't need scientific proofs you tell him listen Hashem lives in the sky and he cares that you eat kosher the kid will forever think about it and forever be influenced with it so this also gives us as adults a responsibility you may have a yetzara, that you're battling with and I understand but at least don't make the kid suffer because of your problems you have problems, you want to go to casinos you want to cheat, you want to lie you want to steal, you want to curse, you want to act like an animal do it alone don't do it next to kids at least you didn't go to yeshiva? fine, let the kid go to yeshiva why are you ruining his future? because you suck (coughs) why? it's not his fault give him a a chance let him choose now he can't choose yeshiva if you set up to public school because if he goes to public school, it's the only thing he knows. But if you send him to yeshiva, at some point or another, he's going to decide for himself. So, this is a responsibility that we all have. We have an opportunity to make these the next generation bring the Mashiach, or we have an opportunity to ruin them. So that's a responsibility that each one of us has. I means responsibility and an opportunity. An opportunity to make an extraordinary amount of mitzvot, the opposite. Now, this also has to do with this Mishnah that we got to in Perkei Avot. Mishnah Bet, uh, Chelik Bet. Uh, Mishnah Zain, two seven. Afura G'ulgolet achad shezafal pnei amaim. Amar la al deateft atfuch ve'sof metafayich yetufun. Don't worry, I didn't understand it either. Hillel is telling us again, he's the one that's been telling us the last few Mishnayot, of something that happened in his life. But what happened here seems like a simple event. But it can easily change your life. If we just pay attention to the details. He also saw a skull floating on the water. And he said to it, he spoke to the skull, because you drowned others, they drowned you. And eventually those who drowned you will be drowned. He here is talking to a skull, This doesn't sound like something a genius would do, a holy person would do, but nonetheless, it's exactly what they would do. Because here he's teaching us one of the foundational 13 principles of faith that if you do not believe in it, you cannot consider yourself 100% Jewish. If you do not believe in it, and you went into a front of a bed dean like some of my students that want to convert, they won't convert you. If you don't believe in it, you have no share of the world to come. It's a pretty big belief. And the belief is, there's a judge that judges us and he judges us for the righteous, there's a reward for the wicked, there's a punishment. If a person does not believe in reward and punishment they're not believing in one of the foundational principles of the Torah. And Hillel is telling us here he sees this gulgolet, this uh, skull floating in the water He says, a skull doesn't just float in the water by itself. It got here somewhere. If this person was a decent human being, Hashem wouldn't give him such a horrible ending. Not just a horrible ending as far as the fact that he died, but a horrible ending in the sense that he didn't even get the honorable type of burial. Now of course we know there's Asarau Ahugei Malchut, Rabbi Akiva was one of them. And we know that they all got horrendous deaths. This does not mean that they were wicked. This was a sacrifice. This was a kaparat avonot for things that happened in previous generations. But nonetheless, they still got, many of them, still got the honor of being buried. It's rare for someone not to get the honor of buried. Some of them didn't, unfortunately. But that's a different story. On a general perspective, most people, regardless of how they pass, have the honor of getting buried, have the honor of getting respect, but this gulgolet, this skull, did not. And he says it's because it's something he it did. The skull belonged to somebody, and it's not some mikre, it's not some coincidence, or some accident. Hashem didn't miss out. Hashem didn't make a mistake. There's no such things as Hashem making mistakes. If Hashem was able to make mistakes, he wouldn't be Hashem. He would be human. So Ilal is telling us here that first and foremost, you have to know that everything we do has a consequence. In Ikmagah, Masikh at Shabbat, It gives us this principle directly from the Torah. Rav said, There is no death without a transgression, and there's no suffering without sin. So this is a pretty short statement, but it's huge. First, he's telling you, there's no such thing as someone dying without them making a sin. With the exception of four people. In the Gemara, Shabbat, same page, just a little further on, uh, 55. It says there's four people throughout history that died without making a sin. And the only reason Hashem killed them is because of the sin of Adam. The original sin. Other than that, they didn't make any sense. Who are those four people? One of them is Moses' father. Another one is King David's father. Another one, it's Benjamin, Yaakov's uh, uh, son. And a third and a fourth one is one of David's sons. So we have, uh, uh, Bechilab, Bechilab was his name. So we have four people throughout history that are noted in the Gemara Masechet Shabbat, page 55b, saying there's only four people in history that didn't sin. And they died for an original sin. They died for a previous generation sin. Many, many, many years before. But the rest of us, the only reason someone ever dies is because of some type of sin they made in their life but then it says something else it says and there's no suffering without sin so wait a minute first you die because of the sin then you suffer because of the sins which one is it? so here we see that there's a significant difference in the words for sin in Hebrew Chet is a sin that was accidental you didn't know it was a sin you didn't mean to You accidentally ran into the light switch on Shabbat and turned it in. Not not on purpose. Accidentally you ran into it. In the days of Sanhedrin, days of Betta Mikdash, you have to bring a korban. You turn on the light on Shabbat, you have to bring a korban. By accident. If you did it on purpose and there was two witnesses, they'd kill you. There's no tshuva. You turn on the light on purpose, oh, it's funny, yeah, it's fine. You bring a korban. You become the korban. (laughs) Now why do you have to bring a korban you lit it by, you, you by accident. Come on. Hashem, relax. I didn't mean to turn on the light. Why do I have to bring a koban? It's not a cheap koban. It's a whole cow. $10,000, 20000 for one light. Hashem, no. Relax. Let me be like the poor people. Bring a little bird. One light. I have to spend $20,000. You really need this koban. You really need this cow. This... 15 million other people bring a korban every Shabbat. Why do I have to bring my korban? Because in reality, Hashem is trying to tell you something. That accident you made, it should have never happened. If you had the proper amount of, of Yirat shamayim, if you had the proper amount of fear of Hashem, you wouldn't have even dared to make an accidental sin. And the korban is just a reminder that in reality, you're supposed to be the korban. In reality, you're the one that's supposed to die right now. But I have mercy. (coughs) Because if I judge that strictly, the whole nation wouldn't survive a week. But that's accidental sin. On purpose sin, there's no tshuva. No tshuva. Where we learn it from? Slofchad. Slofchad. we're going to read about in a few months. It's the first violator of Shabbat in history. This is in the Torah. This is not Chazal, this is not Rashi, this is not Midrash. This is actually a story in the Torah. A person by the name of Tzlovchad, who a week after we got the Torah, meaning we've only had the Torah for two weeks, he violated Shabbat, they arrested him, and Moses came to Hashem and he said to him, Hashem, what do I do with him? What do you mean, what do you do with him? He knows the Torah, Moshe. Moshe was already in Mount Sinai. He knew the Torah. He doesn't know what to do. The question is, now what to do with him, whether I should judge him and kill him or not. The question was, what kind of death penalty is he going to get? The worst kind or the second worst? And Hashem says, the worst kind. Kill him with stoning in front of the entire nation. So for anyone who is still wondering whether Shabbat is important or not, who has family who is wondering whether Shabbat is important or not, they should know, they should read the Torah, to learn about a person by the name of Tzlovchad, who violated Shabbat only one week after we got the Torah. Meaning that if there was ever leniency from Shamaim, say, you know what, you only had the Torah for a week, you didn't read the whole book. Come on, it takes us a year to read it, and we're dedicated. A week you're going to read the whole Torah you didn't read the whole book relax Hashem no no relax I gave you Shabbat you have to keep it so if he didn't have an excuse we definitely don't have an excuse because we're 3,330 years later we had enough time to read the Torah and this is why the also says that someone who makes a sin as a result of lack of knowledge if the lack of knowledge is just because he studied but just didn't get to it then it's shogig. Then it's accidental. But it's of lack of knowledge because he just didn't study, period. He chose not to study. Then that sin becomes intentional. Becomes mezid. No one shows up to Shamaim with shogig sins. With a, millions of shogig sins if he studied Torah. It's either mezid, it's either on purpose, or there's no sin. Or very few accidentally that you haven't gone to because you didn't complete the whole Torah. So here the Mishnah is telling us that Chet is an accidental sin. Avon is on purpose. So Rav Ami here in the Gemara is telling us one of the foundational things that is going to explain to us this Mishnah and actually a controversial issue called reincarnation, Gilgulin. He's saying here, if someone made an accidental sin, then they're going to get suffering because in reality you're supposed to get death penalty but I'm going to give you suffering just because I'm going to give you another chance the suffering is actually a reward the suffering is called kaparat avonot just like the kaparat avonot that I had on the way here get into a car accident and probably made some type of sin it doesn't happen for no reason or you think I'm a tadik? I make sins also so I did something, I don't know what I did I have to do some cheshbonot. When I get home, I have to do some cheshbonot shamaim, see what's going on. What will I do? Cheshbon nefesh. I have to figure out what I do to get into a car accident on the way to a lecture. Okay, one end, I could explain it in a nice way, say it's the Satan's fault. But Satan doesn't have rule over the world. I have to sign off on something. I have to do something to influence him, to give him permission. So suffering... Is Kaparat Avonot. anyone who did not hear my personal story, my personal tshuva story, it's in the CDs, it's the first track in the black one. It's a very popular lecture of ohashem. Hashem, people from all over the world have been influenced by it. It involves millions of dollars, fame, fortune, a medical mystery, a medical disaster, and seven years of fighting for my life until I found the truth. It's an interesting story, Hashem. I'm not going to go into it now, but nonetheless, as the prophet Jeremiah starts the third chapter of Echa, the book of Lamentations, he says, I know suffering, that's how he starts the book, I know suffering, he saw the Choban Beit HaMikdash, he saw a river of blood of Am Yisrael, he knows suffering, in my little level, I know suffering too. Not like him, but I know suffering, Baruch Hashem. So when this when this Gemara tells me here, you made a sin, you're going to get suffering. I have an answer. I got some suffering. But then it says, Avon, you get death penalty. When someone makes an intentional sin, and Hashem pretty much says your time's clocked out, we ran out of time. That's what we get a death penalty for. So then, the Mishnah continues, or the Gemara continues, and it says, "En There is no death without a transgression, without an accidental sin. And he uses Ezekiel eighteen twenty as a source. itamut ben lo yisa be'avon av The soul that sins, it will die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, nor shall shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. So here we see that he explains the Mishnah in a very simple way, telling us that if you're suffering for any reason whatsoever, there's a reason for it. If, you, if someone dies, whether it's early, late, there's a reason for it. If this gulgolet, if this uh, skull is here, there's a reason for it. Now many people like to go after Rabbi Mizrahi because of some things that he said and taught about reincarnation, about autistic children about children that die at young age about people that get diseases people that are born with different mum, different uh, types of uh, disabilities but in reality anyone that actually studied a little bit of Torah would know that everything he says has a source this being one of them this is the Gemara this it also comes from the Zohar it comes from Kabbalah it comes from Divrei Chazal it comes from Reshit chokhmah There's countless sources that back everything that he says. Why does everybody still don't like to hear it? Number one, because they're ignorant and they don't think there's an actual source. And number two, because it's not politically correct to say that someone that came to this world with a disease of some kind, or someone that died early, it's his fault. doesn't sound nice. But Hashem told you it does. Hashem told you it is his fault doesn't necessarily make him a bad person doesn't make you better but if we don't take responsibility for our actions how are we going to do Teshuvah? so first and foremost anyone that wants to learn a little bit about Gilgulim about reincarnations everything that we really know as far as understanding from reincarnation and all of the mystical parts of the Torah most of it came from the Zohar we got from the Arizal who his student wrote a book on his behalf called Shara Gilgulim The gate of reincarnation, and from there we have a lot of different secrets. Now, most people, myself included, in the past, thought that reincarnation is cool. It's great. I get another chance. So, if I don't do tshuva, now I'll do tshuva next time. So, I do tshuva. If I'm not going to keep Shabbat now, Shabbat's going to return. These. Sadiqima telling me that I'm going to come back again. Some say we're going to come back three times, some say more. The Tzadikim says that three times you come back and people think, oh, I only have three chances, so obviously from here, this may be my last chance, maybe not. It's a 50-50 shot. So to explain that, it's not three chances. It could be many, many chances. It's just three chances as a human being. Three chances in a row as a human being, after that, it's a bal After that, it's an animal. After that, it could be a plant. And after that, it could be a domain, a rock. There is different proof, scientific proofs of that too. Anyone that wants to look at it, there's actually rocks that move. In the desert, different places in the desert, in the United States, in the Middle East, in different places around the world that have deserts, there are actually rocks that move. Now, obviously, they don't move like us. They don't go to the, you know, to the store in five minutes. But if they actually took cameras and they left them there for an extended period of time and they saw that the actual rocks moved across the desert and they made streaks on the ground. Just like the car behind me that was right before it smashed into me made some streaks. The rocks also make some streaks. There's also a pasuk in the Torah where it says the rocks that scream. What do you mean rocks that scream? Why is a rock screaming? So there's a part of a soul there. So that's one. So it's not three times and we're out, it's three times as a human being. Now, obviously, an animal can't do the ultimate shuva like a human being can. So in essence, the animal's goal would be if there is a soul in it. Not every animal has a soul, some are just animals. Some have a human soul in them, which is a... Huge level of suffering, by the way, for the wrong soul to be in the wrong, you know, the right soul to be in the wrong body. But in essence, this is a topic that a lot of people don't feel comfortable with because when you really understand a gilgul, when you really understand a reincarnation, you understand that in general, all reincarnations, all of them are a form of punishment. It's not a good thing. It's a good thing because it's a form of Hashem's mercy, not to give us eternal punishment, but it is a punishment. Because once the soul leaves this world, it gets an opportunity to see the real world. And once it sees the real world, it sees that there's Gan Eden, eternal good, eternal greatness, eternal pleasure. And then it's being told, hey listen, you got to go back. You got to go back. What is it like? The sages explain that this is like someone who had some financial issues and told his family, listen, I'm going to go away to a faraway place to go make some money and I'll come back in a few years. Not like today where you go on a plane, three hours later you're in a different country. Back then you had to travel, you had to travel on a boat. Sometimes just a trip will take six, seven months. So he went six, seven months on a boat. Now if he went for six months on a boat, he's not going to stay there for a month. He worked there for a few years, two, three, four years. After that, same trip back, he's already gone for five years. Sends a letter before he got back, so make sure that the family waits for him at the, where he's going to land. Finally, he gets there. He's about to give his family a big hug and a kiss. And the board board patrol stops him and says, Oh, we have a description of someone that looks exactly like you. And it says here that we're not allowed to let you in. It says, Why what did I do? So, you borrowed ten dollars. Ten dollars from some guy named Shmuli in the place that you were in, and you have to return it. Because you know how long it took me to get here? It took me six months to get here. And I've been gone for four years, and in six months I've been gone for five years. You want me to go back all the way over there for ten dollars? Listen, I'll give you a thousand. Give me a thousand dollars. What's ten dollars? Go back there for ten dollars? I'll give you $1,000. You'll send it to him. And keep the other 900 for yourself. Sorry, sir. We're honest people. We don't do such a service. Only way is for you to go back, pay the $10, and then come back. This is what a Gilgul is. This is what a reincarnation is. Someone that borrowed $10 from a friend someone that borrowed $100 from a family member and did not return it in their life unless that person said, ma meaning I forgive you, which most people don't really think about that. Unless that debt was forgiven, it's considered stealing, it's considered gezel. You stole it. And no one that has gezel on his hands can go into Ganedin. Meaning you can be Rabbi Akiva. You can have mitzvot like Moshe Rabenu. You get to Gan Eden, the gate, sorry sir, you still owe $10 to Tzvika back in Israel. You have to go back. They have to put you into another body, and this, they say, Hazal says, is a higher level of suffering than some parts of Gehenom. Because here you saw, it was right there, it was within your reach. I made all my mitzvot, I did Shuvah, I kept Shabbat, I kept this, I kept that. Ten dollars. I have to go back to this life of suffering. And who says that I'm going to survive? I'm going to do tshuva again. That'll keep me this time. I'm not going to fall for the girl. I'm not going to fall for the guy. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. Who knows? Kedugul is not exactly something we should rely on. You have a chance. You have a chance to do tshuva now. You have a chance to do good now. Now, sometimes we have. A person that came to this world in what looks to us like an unfortunate situation—autistic, brain damage, all types of disabilities—and people have a very, very hard time talking about this because they think that they're mis- miskinim. They think that they're poor people. But Hashem, over the last probably twenty-five to thirty years, maybe even longer. We've had technology that allows us to communicate with some of them, not all of them, but some of them, many of them. And in many cases we found out a lot of different secrets of what they really feel, and what they really think. And there's actually proof, the scientific proofs that some of these people have told us that they still have knowledge and memory of their previous life. One of them has made, there's a few of them that have made videos you can watch online. One of them I remember watching one time. They communicate with him through a computer and they ask him all different types of questions. And he keeps telling them that they have to do tshuva, they have to do tshuva. And it's like, okay, but why are you here? Aren't you suffering? Isn't it bad for you? He says, I made a really big sin. That's why I came back. So, you say really big sin. What are you thinking? Automatically, you're thinking Karet. You're thinking Shabbat. You're thinking Zera wasting seed. You're thinking he married a Goya. Married a, you know, you're thinking the worst possible thing in the world. So I made a really big sin. He had a very hard time admitting what the sin was. Finally, he admits. He says, I said Lashon Hara. I said Lashon Hara. That's why I came back as a brain-damaged person in this world. Lashonara. Does any one of us here finish a day without saying Lashonara? Forget a lifetime. We go to Biknesa to say Lashonara. Or to at least gather some ammunition so we can say Lashonara after. Have something to talk about. Make the day interesting. So now... Automatically people say, oh miskin, he's suffering so much. They asked him this. He says, you should feel bad for you, he says. (coughs) I'm a tzaddik, he says. I'm almost done with my tikkun, and then I'm going to Gan Eden. You have a long way to go, he tells them. These neshamot that come down in autistic children... Brain damaged people, their knowledge, they feel bad for us. They feel bad for us because they already know the truth. We feel bad for them because we don't know the truth. What are the sins that they made? I'm not God. I don't know what everybody's sins are. What I do know is, is that Chazal tells us, mida, neged, mida lo paska me'olam." The measure for measure punishment <coughs> did not cease to exist from the world after the Bet HaMikdash was destroyed. There are certain mitzvot in the Torah that are no longer applicable. We can't make korbanot. We don't have a Bet HaMikdash. Even though one of my students keeps asking about making a korban, I keep telling him we can't make a korban. I'd like to join them to do it, but we can't make korban. Once the Bet Hamikdash was built, no more korbanot. Once the Bet Hamikdash was destroyed, no more korbanot. Only korbanot is allowed, is allowed in the sacrifices allowed in the Bet Hamikdash. So that is an enormous mitzvah. If you look at the six hundred and thirteen mitzvot that we have, biblical mitzvot that we have, you'll see that many of them, a large percentage of them, have to do with korbanot, with sacrifice. Which means that a large part of these mitzvot that we got from Hashem, we can't do. So this is missing, but it's not up to us. Hashem made this rule. So some things are no longer valid, some things are no longer applicable until the Bet Migdash, the third one is built. But Hashem is specifically telling us here but my measure for measure, the way I calculate punishment and reward measure for measure, with or without the Bet Migdash is valid. With or without you agreeing with it is valid. With or without you liking it, it's valid. And this is something that's the reason why the Rambam put it as one of the 13 principles of faith. Whether we like it, don't like it, believe it, don't believe it, doesn't make a difference. Why? Because it has countless sources in the Torah. So each time one of these souls comes here, obviously it's very difficult for the family around them. May Hashem have mercy on them. Each time we see it from the outside perspective, it looks even worse. We don't know how they deal with you know, one day. But in reality, Chazal is telling us, everyone that's in that situation, there's a reason for it. Now, to think otherwise, when people are trying to be politically correct, and they're saying, oh, you're saying that this guy watched pornography, and that's why he's blind. You're saying that this guy said Shonara and that's why he can't speak. You're saying that this guy... Stalled, that's why he can't move his arms, you know, all types of things that, it makes logical sense. If you stalled, then you wouldn't have arms. If you violated, made, violated the thought through your eyes, you wouldn't be able to see. It makes logical sense. It's not a one-size-fits-all. It's not that every single blind person watch pornography. But it's a logical explanation. It's a hypothetical example. But to think any anything else, meaning to think that that person is blind and he's purely a miskin it's just like poor guy he didn't do it no he's a tzaddik he's a good guy to think that is actually kfira to think that he doesn't deserve that punishment is kfira against Hashem because in essence what you're saying is that Hashem made a mistake Hashem shouldn't have given him blindness Hashem shouldn't have given him poverty Hashem shouldn't have given him a disability. <coughs> to say that Hashem should do something or not is a problem. So actually, the best explanation, the most correct explanation is the one that we have from the Torah. There's no suffering without sin. Now, even though a lot of people don't like to hear it, and a lot of people don't like to talk about it, this is something that's very, very important because it's something that's repeated constantly. Every time someone wants to go against a rabbi that rebukes or a rabbi that helps people do tshubah through what the Torah says, through the instructions that the Torah says... And he mentions things like this. The first thing they mention is like, oh, he talks about autistic people. Oh, he talks about blind people. He talks about this and he talks about that. Yeah, the Torah talks about it too. And this is the Mishnah. This exact Mishnah is telling the the, Hillel, which we learned from previous Mishnayot, just to know how big a teacher is, first you need to know his students. Because sometimes you don't know how good the teacher is. It says, the Gemaraim, Hasechet Barachot says, a student will take 40 years to understand what his rabbi really said. What do you mean? I came to the drasha, I listened to the rabbi, after that I had a meeting with him, I understood what he said perfectly. Because No, to really understand what the rabbi really meant, if the rabbi knew you, if it's personal advice, the rabbi knows you, to really understand what he means, take you 40 years. Just like Ami said, took 40 years to finally understand the gedula of Moshe Rabbeinu. So Hillel said his top student was Yonatan ben Uziel. His worst student <coughs> was Rabbi Yochanan. Yonatan ben Uziel was so holy that whenever he would study Torah, he would create a spiritual fire that if a bird flew over him, she would go on fire. I study, nothing happens. Bird flies, bird doesn't fly... Doesn't even look at me sometimes. He studies fire. Bird goes on fire. I think about fire. Rabbi Yochanan was the least of his students. What did Rabbi Yochanan know? He knew the entire Torah by heart. All the Midrashim, all the Shukhan Aruch, all the Gemara, all the Zohar, all the Mishnayot, all of the Maaseh um, Bereshit, meaning what happened before this world. All of Masemir Merkava, what happens beyond this world? Also, if that's not enough, he also knew the language of the shadim. Shadim would come, he would talk to them. Demons come, you talk to them. We see a demon, we run away. We get a heart attack, he would talk to them. Malachim, come they talk to him also. He knew the language. If that wasn't enough, once in a while you talk to trees and birds. He knows that you know the language of the trees and birds. We barely know how to spell bird. But he knew how to talk to them. This is the least of Hillel's students. And this is Hillel is saying this. This is the Hillel that's talking about this skull. And he's saying, you skull. You're only a skull floating over here because you made a sin. You killed somebody and that's why somebody killed you. You made somebody's skull float in the middle of the river and not have a proper burial. And that's why Hashem did it to you. And the people that did it to you will also get the same thing. Somebody like that you should listen to. So now, he let give us a little bit of a shock. And then he continues with the next Mishnah, Mishnah Chet. And he says, Marbe basar, Marbe rimah. Marbene nechasim Arbe daagam marben nashim marbeh kshafim Ekshafim, shvachot Fahod Marbezima, marbeh avadim marbeh gazel marbeh torah marbeh chaim, marbeh shiva marbeh chokhma Marbe etza Marbet Vuna, Marbet Staka marbeh shalom kana shem tov kana leatzmo, kana lo torah kana lo chay translation much longer mishnah but it says here he was accustomed to say the more flesh, the more worms, the more possessions, the more worry, the more wives, the more witchcraft, the more maidservants, the more lewdness, the more men servants, the more thievery. However, the more Torah, the more life, the more study, the more wisdom, the more counsel, the more understanding, the more charity, the more peace. One who has gained a good reputation has gained for himself, for his own benefit. And one who has gained himself Torah knowledge has gained himself a life of the world to come. So here, Hillel continues this Mishnah and he says to us, There are several different things that will ruin you, and there are several different things that will build you. These are the following. First, he says, More flesh, more worms. What does it mean? This means if if you have a desire for food that you can't control, you're going to get fat. And if you get if you go overboard, he's telling you this is only going to bring you more embarrassment. Because eventually, as it says in the Gemara, Masechet Brachot, page eighteen, just like a flesh and blood person feels the pain of a needle, the body feels the pain of the maggots eating his body. So we ask, what do you mean the guy is dead? How is he feeling it? Once once somebody dies, soul's out. That's it. Body's off Well, according to the Gemara Hashem as a apparent wake up call right when we go into the entrance of the next world reminds us of some of the things we did in the first world if we weren't able to control our desire for food we get the first level of punishment which is feeling the pain for that year where it takes for all the worms and maggots to eat our body. And one of the uh, Midrashim explains that this is part of the reason of why the stomach explodes and blows up in our face. All the food goes on, you know, all the intestines or whatever it is goes in front of the dead person's face. It's a little graphic, but nonetheless, this is not a, uh, a pleasant experience, let's say. And the reason why is because he's saying... You did this because you didn't, you weren't able to control yourself. You weren't able to control yourself. You didn't fulfill your full mission. In the Mesilat uh, Yesharim, by the Ramchal, who wrote it with Ruach Kodesh, he say. It says, "Kol haMerachem." uses the uh, Sefer Dvarim, Parshat Re'e. It says, "Kol haMerachem al Abriot Merachmim alav min Hashemayim." Sheamar v'natan l'cha Merachmim richa mecha. It says in the uh, Gemara Masechet Shabbat it says that the use from Dvarim The verse that says that he may grant mercy and be merciful to you really means that anyone who has mercy on his fellow creatures, on other human beings, on animals, on so on, will actually bring mercy upon himself from Shemaim. So if you have mercy on other people, the Messiah says that they're going to have mercy on you. So if we take that statement literally... It contradicts everything I just said for the first 50 minutes. Because, in essence, what we believe in today is that if we tell people the truth, it may offend them. We tell somebody, listen, if you violate Shabbat, according to Rambam, Ilkhot Shabbat, you're not considered Jewish, you're actually considered an idol worshiper. This is offensive. Tell somebody, listen, the fact that your foot hurts means you made some, you did something wrong. The fact that you got into a car accident means you did something wrong. The fact that this happened means something... New. You're not exactly Moshe Rabbeinu. This is offensive. Because everyone wants to think that they're Moshe Rabbeinu. I remember myself, when I first started doing tshuva, I started reading Tehilim. I was going through hell, and I figured, I'm going to start reading Tehilim. My mom read Tehilim my whole life kept mentioning Tehilim, Tehilim so I said okay I'll read Tehilim I didn't really know what I was saying but I did know how to make the sounds so I made the sounds and I read and I read and I read and I really got into it and once in a while I would actually understand what I read and I'm telling you I was certain that at some point Hashem was going to talk to me I was 100% sure that I was going to be Moshe Rabbeinu I'm not joking but I really thought that Hashem was going to talk to me it's like Yaron I hear you <laughs> It didn't happen. He didn't talk to me. I had to keep reading. Maybe on something. Maybe I stopped too early. Still waiting. Still waiting. So all of us like to think that we're better than what we really are. So when we tell somebody something and we remind them that they're not, we actually remind them that they need to fix themselves, it's offensive. Mesirat Yisherim said over here that if you have mercy on someone, then you're going to get mercy upstairs. And we misunderstood that verse. We misunderstood what the Ramchal said. We think that by not telling him the truth, we're actually showing mercy. We're doing him a favor by not reminding him that he's a thief, liar, crook, criminal, and so on. In reality... It's the worst possible crime we can make. If you go into the Gemara Masechet Shabbat, page 54b. Chazal talks about a story of what happened during the Choban Bet-Mikdash. Explains to us that initially... (coughs) Hashem did not want to punish the tzaddikim. People were keeping Shabbat, following the entire Shuchan Aruch, learning Torah every day. Original judgment was to spare them. He said, all of the people, He said to the angels, go down there and mark all of the people, the tzaddikim, with the ot talif, the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet on their forehead. And those people don't touch them. They're excused from punishment. Everyone else, punished. The Midat din, the other side of Hashem, says, wait a minute. Hashem et what's the difference? What's the difference between those people that you're putting the tough on them and the ones that don't have a tough on them? He says wait. This one fulfilled shulchan Aruch went to shiur at ten o'clock at night. The other one's are al The other one's a criminal, violated Shabbat, did this, did that. <coughs> It says yes, but you said in the Gemara, Nitfas Al Nitfas Al Kulo. Whoever has the ability to protest against the members of his household, but does not protest, is punished for the transgressions of the members of his household. If it's against the people of his town he's punished for the transgressions of the people of his town if for the transgressions of the entire world he's punished for the transgressions of the entire world translation of this atomic bomb if you have the ability to tell somebody that you know to stop sinning you know them your son your daughter your wife your husband, your neighbor, your colleague You have a connection to them You have an influence on them You have a relationship with them Anything Something exists between you Other than just strangers You know he violates Shabbat And you know what Shabbat is Apparently he doesn't And you decide not to do anything Gemara here says You get the punishment for Shabbat He gets it also but you also. You go up to Shemaim and say, Oh, I kept Shabbat my whole life. I did Tshuva. I listened to Rabbi Mizrahi. I listened to Rabbi Yaron. I listened to Rav Zamir. I listened to somebody. I, I kept Shabbat. So, yo, no, no, no. You're a Shabbat. Yo. No, I kept Shabbat. 30 years I kept Shabbat. No, 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 no. What about your next door neighbor? You BFFs. You guys watch the game every Sunday together. Right? You watch the game, waste your time, everything. Why don't you tell him about Shabbat? Oh, I didn't think he was going to listen. Oh, you didn't read Masechat Shabbat? Because it answered that question. Further it says, if you have influence over a city, not just your house, a city, you are a big rabbi, you are a politician, you are a some type of influential figure. People come to your house just to know that they came to your house. You have the ability to influence other people and you don't, you get all of their sins. Hashem And the E'Rachem, if you're G'dol Adol, Because you're the Moshe Rabbeinu of the generation. And you don't tell people, Michalel Shabbat, Mot Yumat. You get everybody's Chilul Shabbat. So the Midat Adin came to Hashem and said, this is what you wrote in your Torah, Hashem. It's not some uh, parable. (laughs) So what's the difference between the Tzedikim, that have the Tafah on them, and the Rishayim? And Hashem says nothing. Take off the tough. Take off the tough. Punish them first. Rabbis, punish them first. Avrechim, punish them first. Every single person that did not fulfill the mitzvah of Ocheach, Tocheach et which is one of the 613 commandments in the Torah, which is you must rebuke your people. Anyone who did not fulfill it, that taf, that letter, now spells something else. In the beginning, Chazal says, the commentators say the taf actually was implying that they followed the entire Torah from Aleph at taf, from A to Z. So taf meant like they fulfilled the entire Torah. But then I had a chidush, and I thought, yeah, but now the taf means something else. Tochiach. They didn't do it. They didn't rebuke. And this is the reason why the Gemara says they got punished first. So, when we see people going against the Torah, we have to realize that we have a responsibility. If we see that people are not following it, we have a responsibility for ourselves and for our community. If someone is so consumed with just their own meat, we just their own life it's very easy to forget about your responsibility it's very easy to enjoy this world so much that you forget about your real responsibility for the next world after that he says once someone gets to a point where they feel like they, they start feeling at home at, in this world they eat non-stop they live to eat instead of eat to live it's very easy to fall even further into the next part which is the more possessions the more worry there used to be a uh, rapper called Biggie Smalls back in my generation when I was a little kid well not really that little but he uh, used to say the more, m- more money more problems and he made millions of dollars for saying that verse it's actually already in the Torah in several places. It's in Pir-Kiabos. It's in Pir-Kiabos. we're reading. More money, more problems. That's what Hillel is telling us here. He says, more possessions, more worry. Meaning, in the beginning of your life, you're really more worried about food, enjoying this life, marrying someone pretty, marrying someone funny. Once someone gets a little older, to get more connected to money, they start chasing money. As a matter of fact, Chazal says that all of the desires that you have in the beginning of your life change over time, but there's only one desire that just gets worse, meaning that you just want more of it, and that's kavod. And one of the way one of the ways to get kavod, one of the ways to get pride, is money. Why do you think Warren Buffett, Kirk Kerkorian, and all of these 900-year-old businessmen still work? And if anyone says because they have nothing else to do, trust me, with 50, 100, 200 billion dollars, you have plenty to do. Go on vacation. Go read a book. What do you need to go to work for? There's nothing else. They're connected to it. Gemara says, you give him 100, he wants 200 give him 200, he wants 400. Meaning the more one has, the more he feels like he's missing. The guy that's barely makes it through the week, only made a profit of $150, feels like, ah, oh, next week I'll have 300. Next week I'll have another 150, I have 150 this week. Next week, Hashem, I'll have 300. Everyone always thinks about, oh, if I win the lotto. But in reality, he would be happy with 300 Right now, you give 300 instead of 150 Happiest guy in the world. That's his lotto. The guy that made a million this week is a miskin. My mash miskin. How do I know? I used to be one of them. Made $1.6 million in one day. One day. Not a week, not a month, not a year. One day. $1.6 million. And I went back to work. And my employees came into my office and they said... You just make a bunch of money today? I said, yeah, yeah, I made $1.6 million. And I said, So why are you still working? What else are we going to do? Go party. Uh, uh, for what? Like, aren't you happy? I said, Yeah, I was happy for a few minutes. <laughs> was, that's it? I'm like, Yeah, that's it. Wait a minute. It was supposed to happen. I worked for it to happen. I worked for a long time for this to happen. I didn't just wake up one day and somebody sent me one point six million dollars in a bank. I worked and eventually it happened. It was supposed in my mind, it was supposed to be this way. But I was already thinking about the three point two million I don't have. That's why I needed to work. I made the one point six, but now I'm missing more. I got to five million that year. But now I'm missing another five. In the beginning of my career, I didn't make money for six months. For six months, or a little more than six months, I was borrowing one dollar a day from a guy named Dimitri. So I could buy 50 cents for coffee, and 50 cents for donut. And that was my food for the day. And I would sneak on the bus, and pretend like my metro card, which is like the card we have to get on the bus, instead of tokens and things like that. And pretend like, oh, this metro MetroCard doesn't work. I have another one. I'll come back. And I go to the back of the bus and hope that the guy doesn't call me because I don't actually have any money. And just fall asleep and pray that he just lets me go. And by the time he realizes that I haven't paid, I can get off the bus. And this went on for six months. And every day, that was my food. A donut was my food. A coffee was my food. So eventually, after about six or seven months... When I finally made, it took home $1,000. It was like $1,001 or something like that. To me, it was all the money in the world. It was the greatest pleasure I ever had for money. From that point on, it was only downhill. Even though $5,000 the next month was great, $10,000 the next month was fantastic, in November of 2002, which was a little over a year after I was practically homeless, I made mean, $117,000 in a month. It was fantastic. The $1,000, best money in the world. Best pleasure I ever had for money. It was only downhill from there. This exactly proves the Gemara. The more someone has, the more they feel like they're missing. And when someone focuses so much on this world, where you work because you want more money, Not because you need to do things. Not because you're fulfilling any type of purpose. You're just accumulating stuff. There's constantly 500 Amazon boxes arriving at your house every day, and you don't even open them. You just order them. Just because you saw it online, you want it. You have so much stuff, you have boxes you haven't opened. You have shirts that are still in the wrappers. You bought them six years ago. They don't fit you anymore. You gained weight. but you have to have it. He let us tell you here, you're missing the point, my friend. You're accumulating so much stuff that you are worrying about the wrong thing. An old businessman friend of mine, David Pruitt, very successful in the um, energy business, made fortune, and a phenomenal one-liner. He says we would analyze businesses together. We were part of some group together. And one time this lady was trying to give us a uh, idea of her business. And she was telling us about the problems that our business has. Or what she thought the business has as problems. And he told us something I'll never forget. He says, you have the right amount of worry, but you're worried about the wrong thing. Yes, it's good. You're supposed to be worried. You have a problem. But the problem you have is different than the problem you think you have. You think that your biggest problem is not having money. You let is telling you the fact that you think money is important in the first place, that's the problem. Because by focusing on money, only thing that's going to happen is you're going to spend too much time figuring out how to make it, figuring out how to keep it figuring out how to chase it, figuring out how to have it, manage it, spend it. Marbe daaga, marbe worry, a lot of worries. Next. Marbe nashim, marbe kshafim. More wives, more witchcraft. In the old days, according to the Torah, according to Hashem, you are allowed to marry multiple wives. Rabbeinu gershom, Outlawed this approximately a thousand years ago when he saw that the generations over the last several thousand years, or especially the last two thousand years, have gone down to such a point where marriage was no longer a sacred, valuable asset of what it's supposed to be. Excuse me. In the old days, we would get married to build a family, to build holiness to bring more Judaism bring more Torah bring more mitzvot to the world today we have filthy minds if I talk to anybody if I even mention the word polygamy or marrying multiple wives immediately every single man in the room thinks about something sexual immediately natural inclination of every single man is to think about oh you know what he starts thinking about different things immediately unless you're glued to the Torah and you have a pure mind you have a pure mind; you don't think anything like that. Filthy mind—it's the only thing you're going to think about. But then you think about, "Ah, you know what? But all this money that I worked so hard for—I have to spend it on the second wife too." No, no, you know what? I'll stay with one. You like the money more than the wife—that's why it came first in the Mishnah. But in the old days, you were allowed to marry more than one wife. But he says that if you actually are doing it in an inappropriate way, where you're not managing the household like you're supposed to, instead of it being Kedushah, it could be Tumah, meaning it could create tension between the wives, create jealousy between the wives. And at those days, they actually had powers, and they would be able to use witchcraft on each other. They would try to kill each other off. Next. Marbesh Shfachot, Marbeh More maidservants, more lewdness. The Rambam says, as we all know, or at least we hope we all know, there are several really, really big sins. Chilul Shabbat is one of them. Intermarriage is another one. Idol worship is another one. Chilul Hashem is another one. There's a few really big sins. Everyone knows it's a big sin. There's three specific sins. are the worst sins in Judaism. Two of them we know. Two of them, almost every Jew knows, even the ones that don't believe in the Torah. One of them being, Chilul Shabbat. People have heard that Shabbat's important. They may not know it's the worst thing, but they know it's important. Chilul Hashem, it's logical, going against Hashem, embarrassing Hashem's name. Logical. The third one, The overwhelming majority of Am does not even know it's bad. Let alone being the worst possible sin in Judaism. And that's wasting seed. Wasting seed on purpose. When people just decide having intimacy before marriage without an actual objective of bringing children to the world, pleasuring themselves because for whatever reason or another they can't find a wife, and they decide to waste seed. Or, they decide to do what Eren Onan did in the Torah. Before we even got the Torah. It said that Eren Onan both married the same woman. They married Tamal. But it says that they did something ugly in Hashem's eyes. And that something ugly was wasting seed. So Hashem killed both of them. So we know from here, that even before we got the Torah, wasting seed was a sin. It's considered murder. It's one of these sins it's part of the seven Noahide laws anyone that wants to know more in depth about this sin we made a three and a half hour lecture in New York about it now why do most people not know that this is even a sin because with the exception of the four and a half hours or so that I've talked about it on camera there's only one hour one and a half hours total in the entire world in the English language about the subject you want to check? Check yourself. Type in Wasting Seed on the Internet. Type in Rabbi that talks about wasting seed. You'll find zero. It's three lectures, or four lectures. One is mine for three and a half hours in New York. Another one's not a one-hour lecture I did in Florida. So that's four and a half hours. Then there's a short clip from Rabbi Mizrahi mentioning it for maybe 20 minutes. And then there's approximately one hour of which about half of it or so, Rabbi never talks about it. That's it. No one else ever talked about it. Sounds strange, doesn't it? Yeah. It's not politically correct to talk about wasting seed. It makes people uncomfortable. So people live their whole lives thinking that tzaddikim, thinking their little son's tzaddikim, they come back from yeshiva, not realizing that the sin, the, the kid came back from yeshiva, what does he do? He's 15 years old, what else does he have to do? What is he going to do at 15 years old? You're telling him he doesn't have a, he's not allowed to get married yet. Until he get, becomes a doctor. What is he going to do? He doesn't know it's a sin. What is he going to do? Why do you think most of the people that talk to me about this subject are al The people that call me every single day or email me every single day telling me that they have an addiction to this are people that are fruit. People that are religious. Non-religious don't even know that the difference between them and an animal yet. They just figured it out that they're different. The religious guy has been going to yeshiva his whole life. No one ever told him it's that bad. This is a problem. And the Rambam says, who makes this sin? Who makes the sin of arayot? Who makes sex crimes? Someone that has an empty mind. Someone that has nothing in his brain. He just thinks about sports, women, nonsense, stuyot a person that has divrei chokhmah, a person that studies enough Torah that it's constantly on his mind never gets to a point where he allows himself to think about it so here Hila is telling you when you have marbesh fachot when you bring a lot of maidservants into your house you're bound to sin because if you're able to afford many maidservants you're able to afford many women to work in your house obviously you're doing well off and maidservants don't necessarily always have the highest self-esteem. And eventually, they're going to try to catch the big fish, even though he's married. says, you want to save your marriage? You want to save your ulama? ba Make sure you don't have too many of them. As a matter of fact, also Chazal says, in Maseret Ketubot, page 59b... So, you know, I'm mentioning sources not to show any intellect or anything. It's just to show you that all of this is sources from the Torah. It's not my opinion. It has nothing to do with my opinion. My opinion would be completely different. The Torah says here, a wife of a very wealthy man who could afford extensive domestic help, meaning they have so much money that one of these families that live in Aventura that has... Five maidservants just waiting for their for their job. They're just they're being paid, but they're not willing to do anything. The house is big enough for everybody to play baseball in. He says that woman that is married to this really rich guy that can afford many, many maidservants, should never completely remove herself. Me, it's gonna a mitzvot. Should never completely remove herself from some type of involvement in running in the household because total inactivity can lead to lewd behavior total inactivity she decides she wants to be Queen Elizabeth sit with one leg over the other I have a maidservant my husband made 5 million dollars last year why should I clean the dishes why should I sweep I have people to sweep I'm better than sweeping I'm better than cooking why should I cook Malaya says not only will this lead to eventually destroying your marriage because your husband will find one of these maidservants more attractive than you because of the work she does by the way but it will actually eventually could potentially lead for the wife herself to have a sex crime maybe the tennis instructor but somebody else point being is Keep yourself busy, because as Shlomo HaMelech says, idleness leads to sin. Boredom leads to sin. Doing nothing leads to sin. The fact that you have a lot of money, don't need it. Do something useful with it. Don't do nothing. Don't become a nothing. So he continues, Marbe'a avadim, Marbe'a gazim. Someone who has a lot of manservants, a lot of employees, has to deal with a lot of theft. I used to know this guy who lived in my building in New York, and he owned restaurants. He owned several different high end restaurants. And he told me something that never really caught with me until later on. And he said, I said, well, I the, you know, everybody likes to be in a restaurant business. It's like fancy, it's like you get honor, you get this, you get that, everybody knows who you are, you eat for free, even though you're paying like $300,000 a month to run the place. Seems cool. So I was excited about. it I'm like, you know, thinking maybe I'll get into the restaurant business. So I asked him, "How's the re- restaurant business?" He goes, "It's the worst business in the world." Said, so why do you own five of them? He goes, "I'm already in it. That's what I do." I'm like, "Why is it such a big problem?" He goes, "Because the main thing you have to manage is people stealing." So what do you mean, people stealing? If they steal, fire them. He goes, "No, no, no, no. If you're going to be in a restaurant business, you have to understand you can't stop stealing. You can't stop stealing." But to be successful you just have to hope they don't steal too much. To be successful you have to pray they don't steal everything. They leave you something. Stealing will happen whether you like it or not. This is someone that owned a few restaurants. Apparently maybe he learned his Gemara. His Gemara says this Mishnah says you have too many manservants you have to deal with stealing. Where else do we learn this from? We learn this from Sefer Bereshit, chapter thirteen, verse seven. Avram Avinu saved Lot's life, brought him into the family business. All of a sudden, Lot starts making a few dollars. All of a sudden, Lot has employees. All of a sudden, Lot's a millionaire. one day he had nothing, next thing you know he's a millionaire sounds like uh, my former employees and then Avram comes to Lot in chapter 13 verse 7 and says if you want to go right I'll go left, you want to go left I'll go right meaning wherever you go I'm going to go somewhere else I don't want to do business with you anymore I don't want to do business with you. That's it. We're done. We're family. But your employees are thieves. And they're stealing from me. So why is Avram upset with Lot? Be upset with the employees. Why is Avram upset with Lot? What did Lot do? is telling us here that the employees are only going to do what the boss wants them to. The employees are going to represent what the boss really wants. Your kids are going to look like exactly your behavior. Your product is going to look like exactly your dedication. If you're dedicated to your job, you'll have a good quality product. If you're not dedicated to your job, you're going to be one of those people that has a great product on the outside, but as soon as you turn it on, it breaks. You have dedication to your kids. One day your kids are going to be honorable people, that are smart, that are relatively friendly, that are good people, that are not going to embarrass Hashem's name or the family's name on a daily basis. But if you're one of these people that just worries about what school they go to, so the neighbors know you could afford a $25,000 a year school. You never actually check their homework. You don't even care if they do homework. But you're going to donate $150,000 to the school just to make sure they accept your kids, even though they're retarded, and they should not be in that school. But you want to make sure everyone knows they're in that school. So what happens? Those kids become degenerates. Those kids become criminals. Because you're enabling them to do wrong. You're enabling them to accept the world to pay them for no reason. They're your byproduct. Lot's employees were his byproduct. He wasn't honest, and his, his employees weren't honest. Where do we learn where this comes from, why this happens? Seven chapters later, we meet Avimelech. There's a meeting between Avram and Avimelech. In the beginning, the famous story goes that Avram tells Avimelech's people that Sarai is his sister. To sister. Then they find out. Hashem comes to him in a dream and tells him, if you don't let them go, I'm going to kill you. He's a prophet. She's a prophet. You're in serious trouble here. So Avimelech tells him, "Vayomer Avimelech el Avraham, Maraita ki asiti et haDavar azeh. Vayomer Avraham ki Amar tiraq en yirat Elohim b'makom azeh ve'araguni al Davar ishti." So Avimelech says, "Why? What did you see that you did such a thing? Meaning, what did I do to you that you put me in such trouble with Hashem?" Why'd you tell me she's your sister? I'm in trouble with Hashem now because of you. No one can go to the bathroom. No one can see. No one can. No, everyone's dying. What did I do to you that's so bad that you hate me so much? What'd you see that made you think that we deserve this punishment? He's right. So Abraham answers because I said there's no fear of God in this place, and they'll slay me because of my wife. <laughs> Avram tells us the root of all problems, whether it's stealing or it's murder. Avram says, if I would have told you that she's my wife, your people would have thought, ah, we're missing out on such a beautiful woman, let's just kill him, then she's single, and then we'll give it to the king, and we'll get a reward for it. Why? Because they think that they're God. They don't have Yerat Shemaim. They don't think that Hashem is watching everything that they're doing. So they figured, I'm just going to take his life, and I'll make money out of it. I'm just going to take his money, and I'll make money out of it, and I'll benefit out of it. The same thing goes with Lot's employees. Because they had no Yach Shemaim, they continued stealing, thinking that what they're doing is good. It's good for their boss. So what if somebody else is losing? it's the competition what do I care if the competition is losing the root of all problems is lack of Yachamain, another subject that's rarely talked about today so now we see that there's a handful of things that could easily destroy our past, present and future but then Hillel gives us five things that are the antidotes for these excesses. It's the opposite. It's the cure for this disaster. And it's the true pathway to happiness. First, he starts with Marbet Torah, The more Torah, the more life. Now, life means a lot of things to people. One of them, obviously, is being alive. And Chazal says that it's written in the Torah, Rishayim, people that are wicked, even during their life, are considered dead in Hashem's eyes. Someone is wicked, even though they're alive. The dog's alive, they're alive, the monkey's are alive. They're alive. So they like, I'm alive. So in Hashem's eyes, you're considered dead. It's not a good position to be. Sadiqim, on the other hand, even beyond this life, are considered alive. One of the reasons is because of the outcome of your actions. What you leave behind. Someone that's a rasha leaves scars and wounds and damage behind. Someone that's righteous leaves mitzvot and good things. Another thing is is that a lot of people that relate to my personal story is because of the sickness. Seven years of medical battle, fighting for my life, monthly surgeries weekly doctor visits becoming an experiment all types of fun things giving yourself a surgery is never fun but that's how much I hated doctors it got to a point where after seeing over 50 different doctors and realizing that every time I see them they're making my body worse I started doing everything that I could to start giving myself surgeries that's not life but a lot of people ask me, how did you get healed? What medicine did you take? I tell them I didn't take any medicine. I learned Torah. What's the source? The source is actually in your Siddur. It's in your Siddur, it's in the Torah, it's in the Gemara, in several places. One of the places that you see at the end of Tfilat Shachrit. They use a verse from Sefer Shmot, Book of Exodus, chapter 15, verse 26. Hashem tells us the outcome of doing what He wants us to do. Vayom, re'im, shamo'at, yishma'a, l'kol Adonai Elohecha, v'yashar ba'aynav ta'ase, v'azant ha'nei mitzvotav, v'shamart ha'kol chukav, kol ha'machala asher sabti b'mitzraim, lo ha'asim alecha, Ki ani Adonai Rofecha. Hashem says, "If you hearken diligently to the voice of Hashem, your God, and bring, sorry, and and do what he do what is just in His eyes, not in our eyes. Do what Hashem says, what He thinks is right, not what our opinion is. Our opinion can be the opposite of what Hashem's opinion is." So do what is just in His eyes. Give ear to His commandments, not the ones we created, not the minhagim, not the minhagim we created for ourselves. You know, there's many minhagim in Judaism. Some of the tzaddikim say that if Shabbat was a minhag, everyone would keep Shabbat. But because ala'cha, it's like we feel like, eh, we can, we can't. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Somebody asked me the other day, what happens if somebody breaks Shabbat once a month? I said, okay, one time? He goes, no, no, every month. I'm like, why is he breaking Shabbat every month? He goes, no, once a month he has to work. I said, okay, so the full month I'll go to get home. He goes, no, but what? he doesn't get any credit for the first three for the, for the three Shabbats. I so said, yes, and the entire reward for those three Shabbats will come in this world. Why? If someone... Shaves with a razor blade. Taz, not such a big deal. We know it's not allowed. In Judaism, everyone knows, even the secular people know, that you're not allowed to shave with a razor blade. This is part of the reason why many Jews grow a beard. Today, everyone that starts keeping Shabbat starts growing a beard also at the same time. It's free. You don't have to grow a beard, it's not mandatory in Judaism. It's nice, it's a minag. But we all know you're not allowed to shave with a razor. Now what happens if you find out the chazan, the chazan of your biknesset, shaves with a razor, not only is he not allowed to be a chazan, but he's not even considered part of a minyan. According to Allah, he's not even you're not even allowed to count him as part of the ten people, as a minyan. Why? Because he goes against on a regular basis. Not once in a while by accident. Not that he made a sin because he didn't know. Not that he made a sin that's occasional. Occasionally, he overcharges somebody. Occasionally, he steals. Occasionally, he yells. Occasionally, he does something. No, no, no. He shaves every two days. He violates Hashem's ways, Hashem's decrees on a regular basis. And anyone that violates either Hashem's decrees, or even Chazal, even the Biblical, the uh, Rabbinical, even the Rabbinical decrees on a regular basis, meaning with a shita, on a regular basis, like he has no care in the world, cannot be considered as part of Amcha, cannot be considered as part of Am Yisrael, and this is for shaving. So that's exactly if if it pertains to someone that shaves on a regular basis with a razor, it's even more so for someone to violate Shabbat once a month, knowing how significant Shabbat is, because if he's keeping it three times, he knows it's obviously important. So those three, it's good. He'll get a reward for it, but just in this world. But the full hilu Shabbat, the punishment goes in. You know, on, on that last one, which is the reason why there's no shortcuts. There's no shortcuts. There's no, hey, listen, I'm going to keep a few mitzvot, I'm going to keep kosher, I'm going to keep Shabbat, I'll give some tzadka once in the blue moon, I'm going to go to the same place Moshe Rabbeinu is. i want to be with Rabbi Akiva. Or we'll play Sheshbesh. It doesn't work that way. Yemaraz says three things require a Nefesh. Hashem brought three major things into this world, That the only way to attain them is with Mesirut Nefesh. One, Torah. You want to learn Torah? You want to succeed in Torah? Requires Mesirut Nefesh. In chapter 6 of Pirkei Avoda it talks about what does it mean? It means that you have to lower your desires, improve your character traits, and lower things that we feel are natural. And they are natural. Whether it's eating less, or even having less intimacy. You want to become a Talmud Chacham? You have to lower everything. And leave room for the Torah. Second thing is, you want Israel, you want to leave an Israel in peace, no terrorism, no psychopaths, Running you over requires mitsirut nefesh. You have to earn it. In Shamaim, they have to decide you deserve peace and mind. It's hard to get that this day, these days. Third, Allahumma, you want to get to the same place Moshe Rabbeinu is in. You want to get to the same place that any tzaddik is in, even the lowest level. I'm not talking about the highest level, lowest level, the entry. The door of Gan Eden requires Mesihut Nefesh. It's going to require more than just the one Mitzvah you decide to keep because you like the Sheol. Requires Mesihut Nefesh, requires you to change your life, requires you to do things that perhaps you don't feel are natural. At least not initially. So the same thing is just like Hashem says, if you do things that are beyond your nature, I will do things that are beyond... Nature in general, because I control nature. And he says here if you listen to all of my mitzvot, you follow them like I said them, not like you said them. You follow the mitzvot like I told my sages to tell you. You observe all of them. Then all of the diseases that I gave mitzvahim, which Chazal says it was over 80 diseases, they got the number from the Gematria of the world, Machalah. all of the diseases that I gave me time I won't give you because I am God God, your healer someone has health problems talk to God negotiate figure out what you can do chemotherapy is not going to heal you God is Advil is not going to heal you antibiotics are not going to heal you God is, he'll allow you and he'll use those tools as chemotherapy and Advil and and, uh, Percocet and uh, antibiotics and all of those things to soothe your situation and make it look natural but in reality the only way that it's going to work is if Hashem signs off Hashem has to decide that that chalk they call antibiotics is going to work He has to decide it's going to work. He has to decide it's going to heal the infection. You have to convince him. For seven years, I didn't convince him. For seven years, things got worse and worse. Eventually it worked. Which means it could work for me, it worked for you. Because my disease, there was no diagnosis. To this day, they have no idea what happened. To this day... All of the doctors, every time I go to a checkup, which is not often, Baal Hashem, I go for a checkup to a new doctor, and usually they see the medical file. The medical file is like up to here. And they look at me, they look at the medical file, and they tell her, No, no, I think it's the wrong patient. Give me the other medical file. Them, no, it's the right one. It's me. What happened? You think like they want me to be sick again, so they make more money. But. I am God, your healer. He has to sign off on it. More shiva, More study, more wisdom. Gemara Masechet Bavli, page thirty-three, a says, "Call me she'en alav." The Mesillat Yesharim says this in the second chapter. It's forbidden to pity anyone who has no intelligence. So you have a guy, he's 50 years old. You tell him, Moshe Rabbeinu gave us Torah and Mount Sinai. He says, Oh, who's Moshe Rabbeinu? It's a serious problem. On one end, we said in the beginning of the Mishnah, And you're supposed to, if you want mercy from Shammayim, you're supposed to show mercy. On the other hand, we have a Gemara that says that someone that's a fool, you're not allowed to have mercy on him. What's the difference? It depends if it was being foolish by choice or not. If you keep inviting him for 50 years to Ziyot Torah, and he chooses to instead go to the casino, go to the bar, go with the girls, go with the guys, go and hang out, go drink beers, go watch sports... He chooses everything but Torah for 50 years. You're not allowed to be merciful on him. He chose to be ignorant. But if he just didn't know what Torah is until now, he just came out of the hole, like I did, then yes, bring him closer. Have mercy. Save him. Save him. Bring him back. we're almost done says the more counsel the more understanding someone that wants to get full understanding of something if they're running a big company if they have a big project what do they usually do? they hire consultants but as the saying goes you ask everybody for an opinion and then do whatever you want So why did you ask all their opinions for? Mishnah here explains that you're only asking these opinions because everybody's opinions is different than yours. But they're giving you more clarity of what you want. A couple came to me for some advice, Hashem, trying to help them get married. He's a student, she's a student they both asked me to find them somebody. I don't usually deal with this. But if something happens, if there's are siyat yishmay, I try. Why not? So I saw there's two students. They both happened to live in San Diego. They both happen to be around the same age. They both happened to actually look for somebody. They're both opposite sex. It's great. <laughs> and today's age, is always, that was already enough. I said, okay, fine, let's try. So, Baruch Hashem, I tried to uh, connect them. They hit it off. Everything is good, but then you know they start finding out about each other. <clears throat> and the problem that we have in most cases of new relationships is that we put too much weight on the past. Too much weight on what you did. Very little weight, not enough weight on what you're doing. Now, in a secular world, what you did is really the only thing that's important. In a secular world, what you did is most likely what you're going to do. If you are a cheater, you'll probably continue cheating. If you're a liar, you'll continue lying. If you're honest, if you're nice, you most likely continue being honest and nice. Whatever you are is what you're going to stay in a secular world. In a religious world... Your past has nothing to do with your future. And the reason why is because in the religious world, we have something called tshuva. Once you decide to do tshuva, that means that you've removed your opinion. You've submitted yourself to being a Shem servant, in one way or another. You're submitting yourself like Hashem, I really want to go to the casino on Shabbat but you said I have to go to Beknesset so I'm going to go to I really want to eat the tarif but you said I have to eat kosher that costs 50% more I'm going to eat kosher I really want to have I have a Yetzirah that tells me I want all these things but you tell me otherwise I'm going to do what you want me to do eventually Hashem has enough chesed enough mercy on us that eventually we get to like it we get to like the things that we do that end up benefiting us but in the beginning we don't really want to do it in the beginning, you don't just wake up one day, oh, I can't wait for Shabbat. I can't wait to eat kosher. I can't wait to be modest. In today's world, if you're modest, you're like, there's something wrong with you. I have a girl, poor girl. Bo Hashem, she's a student of mine for a little over a year. Sadika, she's maybe 18, 19 years old, which to be modest at 18, 19 years old is mamash, like having prophecy. She became modest Completely changed her life, everything. Her family are full of kufrim. Heretics, worst people on earth. What do they say? Why do you have so much clothes on? You don't look like us anymore. Her brothers, grown-up brothers, instead of protecting the little sister, oh, it's good that you're modest. It's good that you look like a human being. It's good that the whole world doesn't know what you look like naked. What do they say? You have too much clothes on. This is mamasa This is like genom here. Your own family telling you that you can't be modest? But this is what we're dealing with in this world. Our natural evil inclination is going to tell us to do opposite of what we're supposed to do. So, when we do what Hashem wants, eventually we get to like it. That's the good news. The better news is, is that when we eventually listen to all of these opinions in a Torah perspective, after tshuva, we have one main source that we have to compare everything against. All of their opinions, whatever agrees with what God said, valid opinion. Whether I want it, whether I decide I'm going to go with this opinion or not, is a different story. If it agrees with God, it's valid. Like it or not, is a different story. But it's valid. Doesn't agree with God, it's not a consideration. Meaning, that whatever you did before Tshuva has nothing to do with you. Because before Tshuva, you were your own God. You were your own idol. Which means there was no reason for you to change. After Tshuva, you now officially became a servant of Hashem Idbalach. Means you have a reason to change. If you were a cheater in the past, that's because you didn't know that being a cheater is really bad in Hashem's eyes. If you're a thief in the past, doesn't mean you're going to continue being a thief because now you finally know that being a thief is not good. <coughs> if you're one of these people that's so stingy, that's scared to give staka because chas shalom, you may have to work an extra five minutes, or you're scared to go to the bathroom because it may free up some room in your stomach. You have to buy food again. You're cheap. You have a serious problem like this woman, Mishkenah, she called me today asking me, what do I do with my husband? I just found out he has millions of dollars but he gives me five dollar budget a day for 15 years. I don't know, if I was, I would hang the guy. <laughs> but according to all I have to do something different. Like I said, my opinion is different but I have to submit to Hashem. Find out the guy's in a million giving me five dollar budget. Something's wrong with him. But that's what happens when you're so connected to material. So now we have a situation where if you did tshuva, if you're actively doing tshuva, your past is no longer a determination of your future. Your past is now something that you can build on. Your past is now an experience that you can benefit from. Because everything you did up to this point has taught you one main thing. What not to do. All of the past relationships finally taught you what you don't want. Once you've eliminated all the things that you don't want, then you can identify what you really want. But until you realize all the things that are not good, you're not going to know what's, what's good. Until you realize that Alma Shika, the world of lies that we live in, is alma de shikra, you're going to continue chasing the lies. You're going to still continue chasing women, money, and so on, all this material stuff. Once you've realized that the path to happiness is a one-way street, and there's only one path, you're not going to waste any time going anywhere else. Marbetz takam marbet shalom only two left and I'll let you guys sleep a little bit <coughs> it says more charity more peace so simply saying it one to distributes charity creates love meaning that everyone knows that you're the big Baal Chesed oh what a tzaddik what a tzaddik what a tzaddik but in reality you may be a gashah in reality, you donated $100,000 just to put your name on the Biknesset. Not because you care about the Biknesset. In reality, you donated $100 million to the university just because, number one, you get the name on the university. And number two, you get a tax write-off. So it's either IRS, which you don't get any kabbos paying a lot of IRS money. Or you get kabot. Everybody thinks you're a very generous person. So here he's saying, takam, shalom, we have to understand what he's talking about in regards to tzedakah. Tzedakah is not to give money to anything. Tzedakah has to be something that's connected to Torah. Connected to one of the mitzvot that Hashem Bach told us. Whether it's poor people that are really poor. Not like the Red Cross where you give it to a commercial that still has the same little black kid with a bug on his head for the last 37 years. Like he's grown up, he probably has a job, he probably runs the Red Cross now. Like he's not the same kid In the middle of like You know nowhere He grew up Like 30 years They have the same commercial Not the Red Cross That 90 If you actually do statistics 99 out of every dollar 99 cents out of every dollar Go to the company Meaning the executives Meaning their personal choppers Jets Cars Houses Other houses Other houses If it wasn't enough to live in three houses And other houses In the fourth house they're multi-millionaires. How do you work for a non-profit organization and become a multi-millionaire? It's non-profit. Where is it coming from? Same question you ask about politicians in America or any, really any country. The salary for a politician, other than the president, which is $400,000, average politician makes about $150,000. Yet, if you look at the statistics, within... The career, which is usually, you know, could be anywhere from 6 to 10 years of an average politician, the average politician leaves the White House with over $20 million net worth. Now, if you do the math, the guy made $150,000 for 10 years. Let's say he made it for 10 years. And he didn't spend a dollar. They even bought him his lunch money. They gave him lunch money. They gave him the Twix that he got for free. The M&Ms also. And even if he was splurging and got a Snickers at midnight, they paid for that also. They paid for the car, they paid for the house, they paid for everything. He kept every single dollar they ever gave him. Maximum $1.5 million. $150,000, 10 years. $1. $1.5 million. Where's the other $18.5 million coming from? Donations. Donations. He's a politician. You're not supposed to get donations. It's illegal. Go to jail for that. Right. Under the table. Where'd you get the other $20 million? Ah public service it's a good question huh? so now someone that gives staka is giving staka for the purpose of fulfilling Hashem Barach's will it's for the purpose of doing kiddush Hashem you're helping the homeless because you want to be a partner with Hashem Hashem controls money He gave you money in order for you to give it not for you to just have it He didn't give you money so you have a big IRA account He didn't give you money so you could tell everybody how many stocks you have in your portfolio. He gave you money to use it. It's a hammer. It's a tool. You have a hammer for nails. You have money to give. Yes, if you have plenty, then obviously be selective with what you give. But the point is that every dollar you give is supposed to have some type of mitzvah attached to it. You're giving to the homeless because, again, you want to be Hashem's partner. You want to be the vessel that feeds the homeless. You want to be the vessel that publicizes the Torah and you're supporting Avrechim. You want to be the vessel that helps Am Yisrael do Tshuva because 80% of us don't even keep Shabbat, don't even keep basic level mitzvot. And if the Mashiach came now, we would be in a worse situation than we were in Egypt. In Egypt, if anyone doesn't know, everyone thinks that it was a great, wonderful thing. But then the next parasha after we left Egypt starts with the word Vayih. Vayhi usually is negative. Negative tone meaning that Amisa was sad after they left Egypt. Why were they sad? Because 80% of their brothers and sisters died in the plague of darkness. That's why it says Chamushim. Chamushim means a, twi- a fifth. One fifth left Egypt. The fourth fifth, which is 80%, didn't leave Egypt. They died in the (coughs) plague of darkness. And the reason why is because they didn't want to do tshuva. If the Mashiach came today, we'd be in a similar or worse situation. You want to help people do tshuva, that's why Hashem gave you money. So again, we want to be Hashem's vessel. Also another reason, for anyone that wanted to fulfill the previous mitzvah from before, this is actually a good story, a real story. Sometimes people don't have the ability to learn Torah day and night, but they want to have Torah. You've always liked Torah, but you never had quite enough time to learn it. So Chazal says, when it comes to Torah, you could actually acquire it. Not only acquire it in regards to paying for an to learn for you and you get as mitzvot, but acquire it in regards to actually getting knowledge. Hashem says He gives you knowledge. Like you learn Torah, but the actual Torah you have as a result, he decides. So true story, I know this story, this story is true because I was there. One time there was a guy that wanted to do a big mitzvah. Wanted to donate a lot of money. And his father, uh, his father died. So naturally what people do, they want to donate a Sefer Torah. A Sefer Torah is the last mitzvah of the 613 mitzvot. The last one. And anyone that has a little bit of money always wants to donate a Sefer Torah. I did it when I had money, even though I had no idea that it was such a big mitzvah. I just knew it was a mitzvah. My mom told me, listen, to a mitzvah. I had a bunch of money. Okay, let's spend it. What else are you going to do with it? So I made this mitzvah. But then later on, I realized that there's plenty of other bigger mitzvot. Like helping a living Sefer Torah like someone learned Torah it's a much bigger mitzvah than a Sefer Torah because if the Sefer Torah goes in the closet no one ever reads it or even if they read it every week three times a week it's three mitzvot the Avrech that learns Torah every letter that he reads in the Torah is a mitzvah average Avrech can read 600,000 letters a day letters so that means that he makes 600,000 mitzvot per day you gave him money to support him. You made 600,000 mitzvot that day. Meaning, during the lifetime of this Sefer Torah, you're never going to make as much mitzvot as you're going to have with a Zevrech. A real Zevrech. Not just some guy that goes to Yeshiva and smokes cigarettes all day. There's plenty of those. Or perhaps you help somebody do Tshuva. You donated money. Somebody got a disc. They followed this. They say, oh, Shabbat is a big deal. Tarat Mishpachah is a big deal. This is a big deal. Somebody did tshuva. Every single mitzvah that person ever does because you gave him that disc belongs to you also. So somebody wanted to donate money and he said, I want to donate a Sefer Torah. So another guy said, listen, I don't have that much money but I know that donating to Avrechim is a much bigger mitzvah. Let's donate to this group of Avrahim. You wanted to do twenty five thousand dollars, I'll give you five thousand. I'll give you five thousand. I'll be partners with you in this mitzvah. I'm not connected to your father. The guy doesn't even know him. But he was just so excited about these Avrahim and these righteous people that are living off of five hundred dollars a month. He said, listen, if we give this group of 10 avrechim a couple of thousand dollars each, 2,000 dollars each, it's like a life change for them. 2,000 dollars to you guys is nothing. It's rent. If that much. To them, it's 4 months salary. So let's give 10 avrechim, 2,000 dollars each, or a little over 2,000 dollars each, and I'll give you 5,000 dollars. So instead of you wasting 25,000 on a mitzvah that's nowhere near the same as 1 Avrich, let's... Support ten for a short period of time. This sounds great, right? I mean, would anybody here not do it if you actually know the significance? Well, anyway, the guy was a stonehead, and he said, "No, no, no, no. It's not for me. I want to do a Sefer Torah. I want to do a Sefer Torah. I want to do a Sefer. He doesn't even know how to read Hebrew, but he wants to do Sefer Torah. Okay, do Sefer Torah." And actually, he was offended. He was offended that the other guy wanted to donate five thousand dollars. Like, who are you that you're going to give me five thousand dollars? I don't need your five thousand dollars. I have a lot of money. Like he, well, he heard his kavod that somebody wants to be partners with him in a mitzvah. So anyway, the other guy was zealous. He was really loved Hashem, loved these avrechim. And he couldn't take it. He couldn't take the fact that there was a big opportunity to help these avrechim. these ten avrechim and it was going to it's going to be lost. So he decided to do something that's called Tichat which is like opening the Torah and whatever comes out, like whatever first verse comes out, that's like Siat and it's like you, Hashem, that's what Hashem is telling you in a message, if you understand the verse. So this is what he decided to do. He opened the Torah and he opened to this Parashat Kitisa. And the verse that came out was chapter 31 verse 3. I have filled him with a godly spirit, with wisdom, insight, knowledge, and with every craft. Here Hashem is talking about Bezalel. Bezalel, who was only 13 years old, was given wisdom beyond any human at his time to build the Mishkan. And Hashem gave him Ruach HaKodesh. He gave him complete knowledge beyond anybody else. This guy that was zealous for Hashem opened and he got this. Now he wants to donate to the Avrochim because he wants to be an Avrochim but he can't afford to. And he sees this says maybe I'll acquire Torah that way. And he decides on the spot without even talking to his wife without doing anything I have $25,000 that's all I have I'm giving the $25,000 myself. He's not even connected to this mitzvah. I can tell you that this is maybe three years ago. I don't know if he has zohar kodesh, but he definitely knows a lot of a lot of Torah today. A lot. Kana shem tov, kana Leatzmo, kana lo divrei torah, kana lo chaya olam Last one says someone that built himself a good reputation gained it for his own benefit, but someone who gained himself Torah knowledge has gained himself a life of the world to come. Someone that benefited, someone that has a good reputation, people know he's an honest guy, he's a good guy, he's a good businessman, he's this, he's that. So it's good for you. It's good for you to be known as a good businessman. More people are going to come to you to do business. It's good for you to be known as a guy that speaks well, because more people are going to want to listen to what you say. It's good that people know you for good things. But you want something that's really valuable? It has to be beyond this life. It has to be beyond this world. And the only thing that goes beyond this world is your actions. Your actions. If your actions are bad, it will lead to bad, like we talked about in the beginning if your actions are good, it's going to lead to good. If you follow what the Torah says, according to the very same Torah, you'll end up in a And the beauty of it here is that he's telling you that by the Torah, you'll actually end up, if you actually study enough Torah, you'll end up getting both. Last story, and I'll let you go, in the... uh, Life story of Abu Vadia talks about him as a kid, and uh, one day when he was ten years old, his father decided he was the uh, firstborn. He decided to take take him to Baghdad with him, take him to Baghdad, and uh, leave the rest of the family in Israel. And they went to Baghdad. Now. Ovadia, a little Ovadia, a little 10-year-old Ovadia was already glued to the Torah. He wanted nothing but the Torah. So as soon as he got to Baghdad, he says, Abba, can I go while you do your business, whatever you do? Can I go to the Bet Midrash? Go learn some Torah. So he goes to the Bet Midrash of Rav Salman Hugi Abudi, known to be one of the Gdolay Ador. He goes to the Bet Midrash he sees a bunch of old men, all studying, and he's quiet, little ten-year-old kid. And they're talking, they're talking. You know, study Torah. Everybody's talking, communicating. My opinion is this. My opinion is that Tosfot says this. Rashi says this. This one says that. No, you're wrong. No, you're right. Sometimes you get heated. Actually, says that the Bet Shammai and Bet Hillel. Sometimes you even get the fist fights. Not fist fights because of Kavot, Fist fights because they want to honor Hashem. So, they're all talking, all these old men that could all be old enough to be his great-grandfather. And this little 10-year-old kid says, Oh, I think you're all misunderstanding the Tosfot. Which is the commentary on the commentary. The deepest level of commentary. One of the guys says, Chatzuf! Rude little kid. Who are you to tell us what we're wrong or right about? In today's world, in today's words, I have underwear older than you. But one of the other guys actually had some good Says, Wait, wait, why you call him Khatsuf? He says we're wrong. Why do you think we're wrong? And then little Ovadia starts reciting the entire Mishnah and Tosfot by heart. He starts telling them this. He explains to them and they one of them runs out of the room. Runs out of the room, runs out. To Abudi. And he mentions a verse in the Torah that's mentioned about Rav Kahana when he came to Babylon, when he came to, B- to Bavel, to Iraq. He came to Rabbi Yochanan Yeshiva, and Resh Lakish came to him. He says, Kvod Arav, A lion came from Jerusalem to Bavel. So this is what the guy said Torah Abudi. A lion came from Israel to Bavel. So Avudi comes. Says, "Who are you?" Tells him, "I'm Avadia." Goes, "How much Torah do you know?" "No, I don't know that much." "How much of the Mishnah have you studied?" "No, just a little bit." Because in the Gemara, Masechet Baba Metzia, page twenty-three, it says you're allowed, for the sake of humility, not to have, not to get things to your head, for the sake of humility, you're allowed to lie about how much Torah you know. Meaning that you know less. Not you know more. You know less. You know the entire Shaz by heart. You say you barely know Masechet. You can. It's for, for humility. So little Ovadia 10 years old already knew this. We just learned it. Little Ovadia said, I don't know that much. I know a little bit. I just read a little bit. Which, which Masechet did you learn? Masechet Shabbat. Which other one did you learn? A little bit. Masechet Nizikin. Which other one? there's eh, it's a little bit of Masechet Irovin. Which other one? second Pesachin also. No, so tell me, tell me, Bemet, how much do you really know? No, I don't know that much, I just know Seder Moed. Which is a slew of Mishnayot. By the time I finish the Kuchesor, he just knows the entire Mishnah. What about Gemara? You know Gemara because you repeated Tosfos. <coughs> because no, only a little bit of a little bit of Gemara. And then Rav Abudhi says many years later, both Rav Vadya and Rababudi both went on the same bedin. They both became the heads of the bedin together. He says the day I tested him, that day I asked him questions and I asked him a question about the thing that he doesn't know a lot about <coughs> he said he didn't know a lot about Baba Metzia Gemara, Baba Metzia so I asked him what about this Gemara Baba Metzia on this page he not only repeated the Gemara by heart he repeated the Tosfot the commentary of the commentary by heart and for this my friends is the reason why Ravavadya got not only a share of the world to come which we could only pray to have a small piece of. But he also got all the honor we could ever imagine even in this world. See, that the souls that we prayed for today, the souls that are still with us, the soul that left us, the souls that are still here, the souls that we want them to be here. And all of us get closer to Hashem Yidbarach, live closer to Him, get closer to Him, fulfill His will, because ani He is Hashem, our doctor, our healer. He's the one that can fix our souls. He's the one that can make us happy. And Be'ezrat Hashem, He's the only one that opens the door to Allah. Baruch Adonai Olam. Amen ve'Amen.